You're listening to Commute, the podcast. Congratulations, you'll be smarter when you get there. What up? Welcome into Commute, the podcast. I'm Dave. And I'm Jay. And we are about to take you on a deep dive on three topics that we find interesting, and we're betting that you might just find them interesting, too. We can promise you this. You'll be smarter when you get there. On this edition of Commute, every year, like clockwork, it hits the shelves. Candy corn. But where did it come from, and why is it just so divisive? They were the most popular attraction in Las Vegas for a long time. But this magic act ended in a way that sadly wasn't really a surprise. The fascinating story of Magic's favorite duo, Siegfried and Roy. If you played video games in the 90s, sometimes they just didn't work quite right. But the solution for this problem was pretty much the same across the nation. Blow into the cartridge. But did this actually do anything? All of that on this edition of Commute! So Dave, it's the fall season, specifically we're in October, we're heading towards Halloween, and with that time of the year comes candy corn. And I feel like I already know the answer to the question I'm about to ask you, but what do you think of candy corn? Are you a, uh, a candy corn consumer, or uh, do you kind of think it's gross? So if we go outside of candy, so we're saying really anything edible, candy corn is among the worst things that you can consume. <laughs> Uh, it's See, I didn't think you were going to go that hard. Bad. I knew I mean, you weren't going to like it. There's there's different depths of this. There's circus peanuts, which is like, get out of here, vomit. Yes, I agree with you Followed there. closely, but still that's it's followed by the worst candy, which is candy corn. So I'll, I'll start by saying I'm not a candy corn lover, and I'm not a defender, but I think it's just fine. Like if someone hands me some, I'm not going to say no. That um, is so you. I don't really want the pumpkins, like the big pumpkins that come in the candy corn, because it's just so much to eat in one. I'm going to be honest thing. with you. I think that's the perfect way that I'm going to describe you from now on. When people are like, <laughs> "Hey, what's Jay like?" I'm going to say, "Well, put it this way: he thinks candy corn is fine." Yeah, it's just fine. You know, I, I don't really have a strong opinion <laughs> on it one way or the other. Well, Dave, candy corn, this small triangular candy popular around this time of year, is mainly manufactured by a company called Branches, and it has 12 listed ingredients. Sugar, corn syrup, confectioner's glaze, salt, dextrose, gelatin, (laughs) sesame oil, artificial flavor, honey, yellow six, yellow five, and red three. A serving size of 19 pieces is 140 calories and about 70 milligrams of sodium. The history of the candy actually goes back pretty far, a lot farther than I expected, all the way until the late 1800s, when, at least how the story goes, a man from Philadelphia named George Renninger invented it and sold the recipe to Gillette's Confectionery Company, today known as the Jelly Belly Candy Company. According to the National Confectioners Association, about 9 billion pieces of candy corn are produced annually, totaling about 35 million pounds worth. According to the National Confectioners Association, about 9 billion pieces of candy corn are produced annually, totaling about 35 million pounds worth. And in a poll conducted by CandyStore.com, seven states, Dave, actually named candy corn as their favorite Halloween candy. If you're curious what the states are it's Alabama, Idaho, Iowa, Michigan, Nevada, New Mexico, and Rhode Island. And what's wild about that map is they're not close together. It's just totally spread out all over the country. 
It's popularity, I think, Dave, in many ways just boils down to a simple concept. We've discussed a few times on this show, and that is that prevalence at a certain point of the year, the scarcity of it drives its consumption during that particular time of the year, like the McRib or the pumpkin spice latte that we talked about last week. But Dave, within the culture of candy corn, what I think is interesting and why I ultimately wanted to talk about it is that it is strangely divisive. For example, the website takeout.com published an article discussing this debate titled Candy Corn, Delicious or Satan's Earwax? And Dave, I don't know about you, but to me, it does seem like people have very strong opinions on candy corn. In an article for Adweek, Phil Lempert, who has been named the supermarket guru, explained the divide over candy corn as mostly generational, saying there's no question that candy corn is iconic for the baby boomer who grew up looking forward to the once a year Halloween treat. The question is whether it is still as relevant today for millennials and Gen Z. In other words, if you grew up during candy corn's heyday in the 50s and 60s, you're probably more inclined to like it than today's kids raised on a Halloween diet heavy on Skittles and Starburst. Dave, within candy corn truther camps, though, deeper debates rage, such as how do you eat it? Do you nibble each color individually or do you just pop it all in at once? According to a nationwide survey of 1,335 adults by the National Confectioners Association, 42.7% of candy corn eaters start with the narrow white end, 46.8% eat the whole thing at once, and only 10.6% start with the wide yellow end. Within the debate, new life has emerged for the candy corn, as not only have snacks and products emerged with specific candy corn-infused flavor, like candy corn M&Ms, Starburst, Oreos, or even a candy corn cream ale beer, but also if you Google candy corn recipes, you'll be shocked at how many results come up. But this only drives the debate to new heights. Food flavor specialist Marie Wright explained it to Today in this way. It's really funny. It seems to be a very emotional candy, Wright said. People have a really strong opinion. It's almost like if you want to start a little bit of a heated discussion, you can ask somebody about candy corn. It seems to evoke a very strong response. Wright said that the two factors that seem to spur most of the response is the waxy yet crumbly texture of the candy. And of course, it's taste. Some people find it too sweet, while others see it as a fall-defining flavor. I think Halloween and fall is a very nostalgic time in the United States, said Wright. For some people, candy corn is a representation of fall, and they're not bothered by the texture or the taste. So Dave, I think it comes down to this in a way. Our memories around food matter. The way we perceive the food matters. And maybe it just boils down to how we actually taste it more than we ultimately think. We're not a daily show, so we don't really do breaking news on this show. Like, people listen to episodes of Commute from a year ago, and they're just finding the show for the first time. But this could be breaking news if we have any residents of High Point, North Carolina that happen (laughs) to be listening to this show. So High Point, North Carolina has announced that for Halloween 2022... Candy corn, which was banned in 2018 from the city's candy distribution, is back off the unbanned list, Jay. The city of High Point's Emperor of Acceptable Candy, which is a real job that somebody in High Point holds, has said that the candy is back. So rejoice. Well, Head out into the streets, people of High Point. Well, they don't get credit for that because they had no right to ban it in the first place. You know, let people eat what they want. You have to take that up with the emperor. Uh, That's not for me to say. That's the beginning of tyranny. 
Jay, are you a magic fan? Because you actually strike me as one of those guys who, uh, when you were a kid, maybe you had a really simple magic trick set that somebody gave you for your birthday, and you were constantly forcing your parents to watch a trick over and over where it was just you making a string disappear, but you were actually just <laughs> dropping it. You know, I was about to explain uh, the answer to your first question with exactly those words. You know, I, I was given a magic <laughs> set. It was kind of one of those things like, oh, this is a thing that exists. This is something that people do. But Jay, outside of maybe David Copper, Field or Harry Houdini, there is perhaps no more famous names in the world of magic than Siegfried and Roy. The magical duo ran a legendary show in the heart of Las Vegas, appropriately called the Siegfried and Roy at the Mirage Resort and Casino Show for over 13 years, which was the most popular and visited show in all of Las Vegas during its run. The show featured white lions and white tigers and death-defying high-wire magic acts. And Jay, depending on when you enter the pair's strange story, their story is either one of the most interesting triumphant stories you've ever heard or one of the most tragically predictable stories you've ever heard. Regardless, it is fascinating, especially when you consider how the LA Times described the duo in June of 2022. The LA Times wrote... It's not possible anymore to be famous and moneyed the way Siegfried and Roy were famous and moneyed. Jay Siegfried Fischbacher met Yui Ludwig Horn, later known as Roy, on a German cruise ship named the T.S. Bremen in 1959. Siegfried was 20 years old, and while he was working on the ship as a first-class steward, his real passion was magic. Having used magic as a boy to try and connect with his distant alcoholic father, Siegfried would take on the persona of Delmar the Magician and perform for folks on the ship. Roy was 15 and found himself on the boat after leaving school and an unhappy childhood behind for adventure on the sea. Roy, and Jay, this is crucial to the story, Roy had a pet that was more wolf than dog as a young boy, and this helped form his love for wild animals, from a very young age. So when Roy stumbled upon Siegfried that night on the cruise ship, he found the tricks that Siegfried was doing to be a little boring. According to the Atlantic, Roy asked Siegfried, if you can make a rabbit disappear, do you think you could do the same thing with a cheetah? Siegfried said, yes. Jay, Roy then invited his new friend to his cabin on the boat where he had brought aboard, are you ready for this, a live cheetah. <laughs> it snuck a cheetah onto the boat. Jay, that moment began a six-decade relationship between the two men that was as mysterious as their magic show. Sometimes it seemed like they were married. Other times, they appeared to be rivals, communicating with each other only with glances, each with a very distinct personality. Take Siegfried. He was blonde, the true magician, and a perfectionist. And Roy, he had jet black hair, was obsessed with being an animal whisperer, and gave the magic show an entertaining spark of excitement. Jay, starting with that meeting in the cabin, though, each time the duo performed, they had an ace card that crowds had never seen before. The incorporation of big, wild animals, usually tigers. This intrigue led them to decades of shows up and down the West Coast until eventually they met a man named Steve Wynn in 1986. Wynn had recently announced that he was going to build the first hotel casino to be built in Las Vegas in the past 15 years. 
Jay, you see, Wynn had been quietly working on this for some time. At the time, it was one of the largest hotels in the world. And with the development of the hotel, he wanted to put a $30 million theater in where the pair would perform. And Jay perform there they did. In fact, it would be there and only there that Siegfried and Roy would perform for the rest of their careers. Jay, two shows a night, six nights a week, and nearly a million paying customers a year. And if you haven't figured it out yet, and we don't have time to go as deeply as we could, these guys were interesting. They were temperamental, hard to work with, and very eccentric, adding many other exotic animals to their established tiger identity as the years went. And it all came crashing down, though, in 2003. During a show at their Mirage Theater in October of that year, and it was actually Roy's birthday of all days, a seven-year-old white tiger named Manticore violently attacked Roy. As part of the act, Roy would hold the mic to the tiger's mouth and ask it to say hello. On this day, though, Jay, it didn't say hello. It grabbed Roy's neck and drug him off the stage. While Roy didn't die, he was never the same. The attack permanently impaired his motor and verbal abilities, coinciding with a stroke that happened either right before or right after that. But Jay, the attack did something else as well. It forced the permanent closure of the show. And while both Siegfried and Roy have both since passed away, Roy in 2020 from COVID complications actually, and Siegfried in 2021 from pancreatic cancer, their unusual career and popularity embodied Las Vegas for decades and is something we may never see again. Yeah, that's really interesting. Did they ever sort of like nail down what happened with the tiger? Like why it's just snapped all of a sudden? Yeah, well, even to his dying day, Roy claimed that the tiger was trying to help him, that he had actually had a stroke before and the tiger was reacting in kind of a maternal way and was dragging him off the stage to safety. Now, you know, I'm not sure I'd necessarily believe that with a tiger's teeth sunk into his <laughs> neck. But uh, you could. I mean, you can kind of see it. So you don't, you, it's w- widely known, though, that you do not trust wild animals. You're, you're the guy, like, at the park, you walk by the dogs, and you're like, you know what? Like, that dog could just snap at any moment. You well, know, it's good. Like, Grizzly <laughs> man. Look it up. We've talked about it before. Grizzly man. He thought he could be friends with bears. They ate him. <laughs> So Dave, when I was a kid, sometimes I would plug in my Super Nintendo and the game just simply wouldn't load. But thankfully, in those moments, I knew how to fix it. Can you tell me what I did in those moments? You blew in the cartridge, baby. (laughs) I mean, it's just something that everyone of our generation and even a little younger, a little bit older did. I'll tell you what, though, it extended even beyond that. So my, uh, my best friend's grandpa growing up, we, he used to play video games. Okay, so this guy was like in his 60s or 70s. And we'd go over to his house and play video games with him. And even he would blow them out. So it, w- it went well beyond, really, now that I'm thinking about it, even just people our age. Yeah, and everybody sort of learned about it in the same way, right? Like you'd go over to a friend's house to like stay the night or something, and their Nintendo wouldn't work, and they would yank the cartridge out and blow into it. And you'd be like, whoa, oh my gosh, yep. that actually worked. You know, and so then you'd start doing it. And then your brother would start doing it. And it just seemed like it was uh, something that everyone did. It was almost like it was in the instruction manual or something. Right. So uh, if you're unfamiliar, maybe you didn't grow up in the 90s or maybe you didn't play video games in the 90s. A lot of these early consoles had cartridges. Right. So you had the machine, you plug the cartridge in and that would be how you play the game. And eventually this sort of kind of lore just started to spread that if the game didn't work, you pull out the cartridge, 
you blow into it, and then you put it back in. And if it didn't work, you did it again, and eventually it did. And this, quite honestly, like we just said, Dave, it seems to be a really universal experience. All it took was to see a friend do it once, and it worked, and then it became part of the routine of playing an old gaming system like a Nintendo or a Super Nintendo. It became lore, even legend to some degree, the secret that only real gamers knew. So my question is, did it actually do anything? Well, Dave, when Nintendo introduced the NES gaming system, the company tried to specifically emulate what is called a zero insertion force connection or ZIF, which is where the cartridge is specifically meant to require no force from the user because users, well, they can push too hard. Another example of this type of technology are old VCR players where you place a tape in the machine then the machine itself would gently grab the tape and pull it into place. The problem for Nintendo, at least, though, is that their machine didn't really work this well. It did require at least some degree of insertion force to get the cartridge into place. The user was meant to push the cartridge into a slot in the machine. And unfortunately for kids in the 90s, this meant that the slot would wear out over time. And if a poor connection developed between the slot and the cartridge, the game just simply wouldn't work. So simply put, if your game didn't work, most of the time this meant that there was some wear down of the connection. Maybe the copper wore out or the pins. But at least in childhood, it always seemed like blowing in the cartridges fixed the issue, but did it. According to Vince Clement, the producer of Ecstasy of Order, the Tetris Masters, uh, no. That sounds like an uh, interesting show. <laughs> but, uh, continue. I believe it was a docu-series, from what I understand. <laughs> and he said this. He said, blowing in the cartridge is actually terrible for games and makes the contacts rust. You're really not supposed to do it, but it works, <laughs> he told Mental Floss. Frankie Vitruello, host of the gaming show Digital Press WebQuest, when asked by Chris Higgins at Mental Floss, responded this way. While I admittedly may have dabbled in a little cartridge blowing as a naive NES-playing youth, I've long since been an advocate for not doing it with the stance that for whatever it may do to aid in the temporary functionality of an NES, it ultimately opens the door for damage and distress to the hardware. So then, Dave, if it's sort of widely accepted that at least from a technology standpoint, you shouldn't do this, how did this lore even develop in the first place? It seems to really boil down to a couple of factors here. One is that it was sort of a hive mind rumor of sorts, one that seemed to spread by word of mouth. But a more important factor at play here is probably the placebo effect. While you may try this method and it may actually not even work five times in a row, it only takes once for the brain to connect the action and the reaction together. From then on out, it becomes much easier to rationalize that the behavior caused the reaction. Now, for what it's worth, Dave, on the official NES GamePack troubleshooting page, Nintendo states, Do not blow into your game packs or systems. The moisture in your breath can corrode and contaminate the pin connectors. So, Dave, at least as far as I'm concerned, I'm convinced that the answer to this question, did blowing into your cartridges actually do anything, is a solid no. In fact, it's more of a no, and it could make it worse. And as I say that, though, if I were to boot up my old system right now and the game not load, I know the first thing I'd do to try to get it working again. Amen. And you know what? Sometimes you can hear something and then just still reject it. Like, I reject that. <laughs> like we, we did a segment, uh, this has probably been 50 episodes ago, we did a segment about should you actually start your car in the morning, is it good for your car? 
And the answer is no, you shouldn't start your car. New cars are built that you can just get in and 15 seconds later get moving. But it's starting to get cold, man. I am warming up my car every morning because it's good for me. I don't care about the car, it's good for me. I, I reject it this morning. What we haven't learned anything. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to rate, subscribe, and review Commute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on your favorite podcast network. We're on social. Check us out. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And you can always say what up at our website, commutethepodcast.com. Music for Commute is provided by my main man, Jason Sammons. For Jason, and I'm Dave Traub. We'll see you next week. I got to say, candy corn truther camps may be the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard you say. <laughs> I typed it in, and then I erased it, and then I retyped it. Like, I'm keeping it. <laughs> candy corn truther camps. It's like people that wear candy corn costumes at home when they're by themselves. Those kinds they of just people. sit there having fake arguments in the shower like, it is good, okay? It tastes good. It's been around for 100 years, so you're wrong. <laughs>